Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Welcome, Center Street Church. Uh, Those of you meeting here at Central Campus, also those of you who are meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, Ridgeland, uh, in the Crowfoot Theatres in Northwest Calgary, and also in South Calgary. And of course, we want to welcome those of you who are uh, joining us online. Uh, We're making our way through the book of James, and um, today we're going to be examining James chapter 4, verses 11 to 17. And so I'm going to invite you to stand and join me in reading these verses together. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, It is sin for them. Let us pray. Again, Lord, we thank you for your word. It's instruction for life. And uh, Lord, we uh, thank you for just the way that you have inspired James to write these words. And we ask now that you would enlighten us as to the, the intent of these passages, these words that we've just read. Uh, Lord, that you would not only enlighten us, that we wouldn't just walk away and say, this is interesting, but Lord, that we would um, approach you and ask, Lord, what is it you want us to do about it? And then we'd have the courage to respond in whatever way you ask us to. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I want to start out by doing a brief review of the background leading to the passage that we just read. In our study so far, uh, we've learned that the greatest temptation that we face as human beings is the same temptation that um, our first parents faced in the Garden of Eden. And that temptation is, you can be like God. You can be in charge. You can be the center of the universe. Adam and Eve were given a paradise to live in, and along with that, the freedom to enjoy everything in their beautiful world. God told them that they could eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except for one tree in the middle of the garden. He warned them that if they ate of the fruit of that particular tree, that they would surely die. Well, in Genesis 3, Satan the deceiver came along and he said to them, if you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened 
and you will be like God. You will be like God. So what was Satan doing here? He was tempting them to question the goodness of God, the trustworthiness of God, to believe that God did not really have their best interests at heart. Satan essentially said to Adam and Eve, God is lying to you. You won't die if you eat of the forbidden fruit. The truth is, God is just keeping you under his thumb. He's preventing you from reaching your full potential. And as long as you keep trusting him and submitting to him, you will never reach your potential and you'll never live this life to the max. You are missing out. If you really want to be happy and fulfilled, you need to have confidence in yourself. Take control of your own life and call your own shots. And of course, we know that Adam and Eve swallowed the devil's deceptive lie, turned their back on God, and as God had warned them, they not only began to die physically on that day, but they also died spiritually that day in the sense that their relationship with God was fractured. And church, here's the thing. Like Adam and Eve, every one of us has to decide who it is we're really going to trust in this life. Will I trust God and God alone and live my life in alignment with his truth and with his wisdom? Or will I trust essentially in myself, in essence, be my own God and follow the wisdom of the culture around me? Well, my identity, will my identity and my significance be based on who I am in the Lord and who he says I am? Or will it be based on the approval of others and how I compare with others? Will I submit to God and follow his lead in life? Or will I play God and do what I want to do? Now, as I pointed out last time, if we decide to reject God and be the center of our universe, then we're going to have to find our own significance, our own value, our own happiness in life, because no one's going to do this for us, particularly not the God that we don't believe in or that we've rejected. And you see, in a world without God, the only way I can find significance and value is by comparing myself with you competing with you, and keeping score. And if things aren't going my way, if I perceive that you're winning the game, that you're one up on me in some area that's important to me, I'm going to be some upset. I'm going to be troubled in my spirit. And in the first 10 verses of chapter 4, James says, that's what causes fights and quarrels among you. That's what leads to the conflicts that we see happening in homes everywhere in our world. Now, in the passage we just read together, James now goes on to give us more examples of the same. What happens when we decide to play God rather than submit to God and trust Him? 
In verse 11 and 12, he says, we are tempted, when we play God, we are tempted to hurt the reputation of others. In verses 13 to 16, he says, we're tempted to become self-sufficient. And in verse 17, he says, when we play God, we're tempted to not do what God's calling us to do. So let's unpack these, shall we? First of all, when we play God, we're tempted to hurt the reputation of others. Look at verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Slander is the sin of those who deliberately pass on to others malicious information about another person with the goal of diminishing or even destroying their reputation. Even if the information, hear me clearly on this, even if the information being passed on is true, it is still slanderous. Because the intent is to hurt the other person. Now, why do we do this? Well, because we're playing God. As I said a moment ago, if I reject God, then I have to find a way to feel valuable and significant. And one way I do that is by comparing myself and my performance with you. And if I feel that you're winning, if I feel you're getting more votes than I am, then I'm going to be tempted to find a way to discredit you in the eyes of other people by passing on unsavory information about you in hopes that by doing so, people will now think more highly of me than they do of you. And I don't need to tell you, this game is being played over and over again around the world and has been played down through history. And of course, we see it being played out in living color in the political arena like never before. Perhaps you've noticed that the primary focus in political campaigns these days is no longer discussing the issues. Rather, the focus increasingly is all about discrediting your opponent in the eyes of the voting public. If I can convince you that my political opponent, opponent is a worse leader and a worse human being than I am, then I'm going to get the most votes in return. Now, nowhere was this more evident than in the recent U.S. presidential campaign. And as we watched it, most of us were disgusted by what we heard and what we saw. But let me quickly say this. Before we <clears throat> cast stones at Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton for their behavior, we need, to, we need to first take a long, careful look at our own sin in this area. As nauseous and as embarrassing it was for many of us to watch grown adults trash talk each other on the world stage. The question is, if what we've said about others just this past year were aired on public television, would we be equally nauseous and embarrassed? You 
You see, from God's perspective, slander is sin. Whether done on public television or in dark hallways and private rooms. He who is without sin casts the first stone. God despises slander. You see, when we slander someone, <clears throat> we're attacking and we're judging the person that God created, the person that God loves. We're maligning God's precious handiwork. He does not take that lightly. 1 Peter 2.1, he says, rid yourselves, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Psalm 15, verse 3, we have a description of a godly person. And a godly person is one, it says, whose tongue utters no slander. Here in verse 11, James says, anyone who speaks against the brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. Now the law that James is referring to here is the law of love or the royal law, which he defined back in James chapter 2 verse 8 as loving your neighbor as yourself. So the law that's being referred to here is the royal law, the law, the law of love, or the law of loving your neighbor as yourself. And so James says, when you slander or you judge other people, you are judging that law. You're putting yourself above that law. You're saying, I don't agree with that law. In fact, he says in verse 12, when you slander others, you're actually putting yourself in God's place. You're essentially putting on the robe of the eternal judge. And you're saying, I know better. I mean, taking God's place as judge would be like me putting on the striped shirt of a referee and refing an NBA basketball game. I would be booed out of the place within the first five minutes, probably stoned in the parking lot. <laughs> because I hardly know any of the rules. I'd be totally out of my league. Well, that's precisely what James is getting at here. When we slander others or judge others, we're putting ourselves in God's place. In verse 12, James asks, Who are you to judge your neighbor? He's asking, Who are you to do this? Don't you realize that you're totally out of your league when you judge like this, when you slander like this? He says there's really only one. There's only one lawgiver. There's only one judge. And it's the eternal God, the one he writes here, that can not only save you, but can also destroy you. 
Only God is holy and perfect. Only God knows the whole story. Only God knows the true motivation of the heart. Only he is qualified to judge. Now let me quickly point out what's not being said here. First of all, in this we're not saying that we can never talk to other people. Or talk about other people, rather. Aren't you relieved to know that? <laughs> you know, I think if, if you should try this once. I haven't tried it, but I think it'd be an interesting experiment. Just finish, for the rest of the day, try to have conversations about talking about other people. I think you'll find that really difficult to do. But let me just carry on what I'm getting at here. If, for example, I tell you that a mutual friend of ours just got a new job, and I tell you perhaps a story of how God used another mutual friend of ours to really make an impact on his neighbor, this is perfectly good. Because the intent of my heart in telling you that information was to give you an update on the life of a mutual friend. And it was to speak positively about the life of another friend. It was not to make them look bad in your eyes in any way or to hurt their reputation. Make no mistake, positive gossip is a good thing. And you know, as I walk around our campuses and I talk to many of you, as I, as I have the opportunity to interact with people who are becoming members of our church, and just hearing how blessed they are, I mostly hear positive gossip. How God is changing the lives of people. Stories of people who have come to faith in Christ. All the good things that God is doing in and through people's lives. I love hearing positive gossip like that, and I just want to encourage you just to keep passing on positive gossip like that. You can talk about positive gossip all day long. Because you see, it keeps us focused on the main thing. It keeps us focused on God, on God's activity in His kingdom, and those things that really matter. Our Center Street newspaper is full of positive gossip. Go on our website, there's stories on there that we encourage you just to go and tell the world about. So get a copy of the paper, go online, be blessed, pass it on. Furthermore, James is not saying that it's wrong to lovingly confront a fellow Christian who persists in habitual unrepentant sin as spelled out in Matthew chapter 18. See, when we say don't judge, we're not saying, oh, well, ignore the Bible. Ignore what's right and wrong. That is still very true. The issue is the motivation, the spirit with which we deal with what's right and wrong. And in Matthew 18, Jesus said, if there's an issue between you and someone else, the very first thing you do is you go to that person. You do not go to a whole bunch of other people and you pass on even true information 
about other people that is intended to ruin their reputation or to hurt their reputation. You see, if our motive in confronting someone about their habitual sin is to see them discredited in the eyes of other people, if it's to make ourselves appear more righteous than they are, then we're not only unloving, but James would say we're slandering. On the other hand, if the motive behind confronting someone about their habitual sin is love, if it's out of genuine concern for the other person, a deep desire to see them healed and restored, then this is not slanderous activity. You know, so often when we see a fellow Christian stumble or fall or struggle in some area, we often write them off, making little or no provision for God's grace and for them to be healed and restored through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're so quick sometimes to wash people, you know, just wash your hands of them. And yet James says, the law of love says, instead of washing our hands of them, of those who fail or those who fall, our heart motivation be, should be to pray for them, to walk with them, to weep with them, and do all we can to restore them and believe in them again. In other words, we should extend to them the grace and the encouragement and help that we ourselves have received from the Lord and from his church. But you see, we're only going to love like that if our trust is in God rather than in ourselves. And why do I say that? Well, I go back to what I said earlier. Because when our source of identity and significance is found in God, we're freed from selfishness. We're freed from the need to compare and compete and to be seen as more righteous or more holy than somebody else. We're freed to stop thinking only about our own interests and actually to begin to genuinely put the interests of others ahead of ourselves. On the other hand, says James, when we play God, our inclination will be selfish. Our inclination will be, it won't be to heal and to restore other people. No, it'll be to hurt them, to hurt their reputation. And then secondly, when we play God, we're not only tempted to hurt other people's reputation, but we're tempted to be self-sufficient. Look at verse 13. Now listen, you who say, 
Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, James is not saying here that it's wrong to plan. Not at all. The Bible talks about the importance of planning. In fact, in Luke 14, Jesus said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? If you read the book of Proverbs, it emphasizes multiple times that it's foolish not to plan. So the issue is not about planning. The issue is failing to include God in those plans. It is deluding ourselves into thinking that we are the final authority and to proceed making our plans without consulting with the Lord. Let's be honest, when life gets good, when business is good, when our bottom line is good, we can begin to forget about God. And we can begin to push him to the margins of our life where we just kind of keep him at a safe, comfortable distance and just kind of go to him when we have emergencies. We can begin to feel and act self-sufficient that we're in charge and that we will decide what we will do and when we will do it. And yet James warns us of the folly of this way of thinking. He says, you realize, of course, that you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. He says, you you may think that you're in charge of your life, living and planning, like life's always going to go on as it always has, but you have absolutely no guarantee that it will. In fact, your world could change dramatically in a flash. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives the same warning through the story, through a story that he told. It's a story of a farmer who ran a farming business. He works hard and it eventually pays off. His business begins to skyrocket. Now, he knows that he has only a relatively small window to catch the wave of growth, and so he goes into overdrive. He begins to work 12 to 14-hour days. He makes plans to expand his business even more, to build bigger barns. He's aware that his life is way out of balance, that he's neglecting his relationship with God, his relationship with his wife and family. But he convinces himself that this is only for a season. You know, in a few years, he'll be independently wealthy, and then he'll be able to spend lots of time with his family, and then he'll be able to serve the Lord so much more. He'll be able to give to the Lord so much more. Early one morning, his wife notices that he still hasn't come to bed. And somewhat annoyed, she gets up and goes to get him, only to find him cold and lifeless at the table 
with his plans for expansion laid out on the table in front of him. His memorial service is attended by most of the community. And, most, and many important people say many wonderful things about him. Referring to him as a good man, a model citizen, a successful businessman. And yet in telling the story, Jesus goes on to say that God chooses a single word to summarize the meaning of this man's life. Fool. You fool, said God. John Ortberg, in commenting on this passage, he says, God is not name-calling here. Rather, he is giving a tragically accurate diagnosis. Even though this man was an entrepreneurial genius, even though he had carefully planned out every contingency in life, there was one scenario in his planning that he forgot to account for. His own death. He forgot to consider the possibility that somewhere along the way, he might die without warning. He staked the efforts of his life on power, on fame and possessions, but he had not given much thought to God. He was too concerned about what others thought about him and not concerned enough about what God thought about him. And as God examined the state of his heart and his priorities, his passions and the fruit of his life, the only word he could use to summarize his life was the word fool. Ortberg goes on to say, don't misunderstand. I'm sure that he was a religious man. However, you may believe that God exists, but if you live like God does not exist, God says, you're a fool because you really don't know him. James asks, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The psalmist in Psalm 90 says, Teach me, Lord, to number my days aright, that I may gain a heart of wisdom. The psalmist is saying that numbering our days makes us realize that one day the numbers are going to run out. It makes us face the reality of death, and death can be a teacher of wisdom. Death can clarify for us what really matters in life. It can teach us to not take the important things for granted. It can show us where to invest the time, the talent, the resources that God's given to us. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Corporation, he died of cancer a little over five years ago at the age of 56. Shortly before his death, he said this, Remembering that I will be dead soon 
is the most important tool I have ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You don't. You are already naked. And what he is saying is, of course, is death wakes us up to what is really important. But you see, that leads to a question. And that is, what is most important? We have a choice to make regarding that question. Like the rich farmer that Jesus talked about, we can give our lives to what we believe is important. Or perhaps what our culture says is important. Or we can put our trust in God and give our lives to what God says is important. Well, James warns us about the folly of putting trust in ourselves, about the folly of putting trust in our culture, reminding us that this life's pretty short. It's temporary. He says our life's like a vapor that's here for a while and then vanishes. Only God is the rock upon which we can stand. Only God is the fortress that will not be shaken. If it was not for God, I would not even be able to have my next breath. And so given this reality, instead of arrogantly making your plans apart from God, thinking that you're the master of your fate, James says in verse 15, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, this isn't some kind of magic formula you start every sentence with or end every sentence with. I recall in my parents' uh, generation, they would often do this. They would say something like, if it's God's will, I'll see you next week. Well, I don't think that we have to say that all the time. James is simply reminding us that there is a real God who is sovereignly ruling a very real universe, who is the only true foundation and guarantee that we have in this life and who we must not take for granted. And it would serve us well, friends, And it would serve us well once in a while to say, if it is God's will, I'll see you next week. Because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And we're presuming on God when we think we do. James is reminding us that our all-powerful God is in control. That our life and our future is in his hands. 
and that he wants to have a real friendship with us that includes involving him in our day, regularly asking him for his help, for his wisdom and his guidance on every issue that we're struggling with. James is reminding us here that God is so blessed when we come to him every morning and we say to him, Lord, today is a, is a gift from your hand. What do you want me to do today with my time? What do you want me to do today with the talent that you've given to me? What is it you want me to do today with the money and the resources you've provided for me? Which brings us to the final way that sometimes we can slide into the ditch of playing God. And that is the temptation to not do what God's calling us to do. In verse 17, James says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. When we pick and choose what God's calling us to do, we will not only not grow in our relationship with him, but we will miss the incredible faith adventure that he has laid out for us. And perhaps worst of all, God's kingdom will move along like a mighty tortoise instead of a mighty army. Recently, a person asked to meet with me. And in our time together, suddenly tears filled his eyes. And he said to me, I'm here to ask for your forgiveness. He said, I've harbored anger and bitterness towards you. And at times I did not speak well of you to other people. And that wasn't right. And so please forgive me. He went on to say, I don't, I don't want to carry this anymore. I want to be free. I want the joy of the Lord in my life. I want to keep growing in my walk with the Lord. We shared some more. We, we prayed, and then he left my office free in Christ. Because you see, he didn't just hear the word. He exercised courage and humility. He did what God asked him to do. And now he's free in Christ. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to grow in Christ. This is the way the world begins to change. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit. It is to daily read the Word of God and to listen to the prompting of the Spirit of God, all the while asking the Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me today? And what is it you want me to do about it? And then, with God's help, doing it. 
It is praying when God calls you to pray. It is listening to someone when God calls you to listen. It is serving when God prompts you to serve. It is being generous and giving when God calls you to give. It's forgiving when God asks you to forgive. It's asking for forgiveness when God asks us to do this. It is sharing our story, our faith story. The hope that we have in the Lord when Jesus opens up that door of opportunity. It's exercising compassion when God asks us to. Church, imagine how different our world would be if Christians all around this world did what God called them to do. Imagine how different our relationships, our friendships, our workplaces, our churches would be if we lived out the things that we know God is calling us to do and to be. Imagine how different our marriages and our families would be if we humbled ourselves and began to love and respect our spouses and others in our family the way that we know God calls us to do so. Imagine how truly free and joyful we would be personally if we faithfully read God's word and then as God prompted us, faithfully did what he was prompting us to do. Our lives, our homes, our churches, our friendships, our marriages, our workplaces, our city and world would be profoundly different in a very good way. Why? Because through our obedience to God, God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, may it be so. Lord, may it be so. To your honor and glory and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? James says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is why At the end of every service, I ask you to raise your hands to God. Let's do that right now. And just to say to him, Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me? And Lord, what is it you want me to do about it? It's in answering those questions that God's kingdom will come to earth that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that this world will be changed, that marriages will be changed, that families will be restored, 
that people who are on a road of rebellion will find peace with God and hope for a future and fulfillment in life. Take a moment right now and ask those two questions. Allow the Spirit to speak to you. Anything that you know God's called you to do and you haven't followed through on. Perhaps He's called you to stop playing God, to get off the throne, and to let Him have rightful place at the center of your life. And you've stubbornly refused to do that. Maybe he's called you to stop playing God, to get off the throne, and to love your spouse and to respect your spouse, to humble yourself, to put aside your pride, and just to serve your spouse, members of your family. Maybe he's called you to go to someone and ask their forgiveness. Whatever it is, if you ask him, he will make it clear to you. And as I do in all of the services, I'm going to invite you, if there's something that you need to talk to God about, I want to just invite you up here because sometimes when you step out and take a risk and physically come before him there's something about doing that that communicates God I truly do want you to be my Lord and King I want to follow you faithfully and do what you're calling me to do so if God's laid something on your heart, just make your way up here. Spend some time in the Lord in prayer, and then you're free to go back to your seat. We'll just take a moment to allow you to do that, and then I'll close in prayer. Prayer partners, would you just make your way up here right now?
Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the gift of life. It is truly a gift from your gracious hand. Help us, Lord, to not take it for granted. But even more, Lord, help us not to take you for granted. Your will for our lives, the steps of obedience that you're calling us to take. Thank you for the reminder that you're not an angry judge demanding obedience from us, but that you are a loving Father who longs to be in relationship with us so that you can guide us and help us, protect us, and see us be all that you created us to be. Thank you that you love us so much that you tell us the truth about ourselves <coughs> and the ways that we often play God. Please forgive us for that and remind us again and again that true freedom and joy and peace and victory in life does not come when we play God. It comes when we surrender control of our lives to God completely and faithfully follow you wherever it is you lead. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God be with you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.